Thank you for tuning in for another week of APM Success. This week, I'm going to release a conversation that I recently had with Dr. Jimmy Turner over at Money Meets Medicine. So for people who are active in <laughs> podcast consumption, you might have heard that I'm uh, co-hosting some shows over there with Dr. Turner. Check that out. He's releasing a lot of great, important work, uh, not just because yours truly has been featured on it recently, but I'm a big fan of Dr. Turner's and am pleased to count him a personal friend and wanted to share one of our recent discussions that I thought uh, would revisit some important themes that we've discussed in the past on the show. So hope you enjoy this episode of Money Meets Medicine. If you haven't, give him a like and subscribe if you want to, and I will be back next week. Did you know that some of the most important terms in a physician contract actually have nothing to do with your salary or a signing bonus? Keep listening to learn more. Welcome to the Money Meets Medicine podcast, where we talk all about the personal finance topics you wish you had learned in medical school. I'm your host, Dr. Jimmy Turner, and here's your co-host who says that being a wedding DJ is far more stressful than financial planning. Justin Harvey. Dr. Turner, pleasure to be here. Can confirm that once you start messing with the biggest day in someone's life and then mother-in-laws and random uncles get involved and you get all these people telling you to do all these things and all this crap to remember and all these difficult names to pronounce. And like the fear, the latent fear that never goes away that if I need that one cable that I forgot to pack that was sitting in some other bag and I drive three hours to a gig and then I get there and I can't power my turntables, then I'm totally screwed. That yeah. is way more stressful than... Did you ever do that? Well, no, because I'm OCD and terrified of it happening. So I have three of everything. But <laughs> it was only with a lot of stress that I was able to... And even when you do everything right, so quick story from DJ Land, I go to great lengths to make sure that, especially for the mother-daughter and father-son, or <laughs> mother-son, father-daughter dances, you, get a, you download a digital file, like this is the song you want to play for the first dance. You have to make sure there's a non-corrupted file. So any audio people mm. out there probably remember the days when you download something off the internet. Yeah, it'll probably work, but there's a chance that something got weird. So you got to make sure that every file is, you got to listen to every song all the way through to make sure you don't get halfway through wind beneath my wings and then it cuts out and something weird happens. But even when you prepare every single thing, I had this one time when I blew a fuse during the mother-son dance. Oh no. Everyone's looking at me like, is this DJ, what are you doing? And I'm like, I didn't even touch anything. And I made eye contact with the facilities guy. And I was like, I think it's a fuse. I don't know what to do. And then thankfully, everyone started singing the song. It was transformed into a beautiful thing. moment. Yeah. I was totally panicked. And I was like, I, that was when I knew I'm done with this. Even if you do everything right, people still hate your guts, potentially. It's, I had had enough. I hilariously can relate to that. Not because I have ever DJed. Although my son is really, for whatever reason, into trap music right now. And oh, so yeah, nice. I think at some point throw his hat in the ring in that, but he's 10. So we'll see. Maybe the gaming computer will become a DJ opportunity at some point. I'm not sure. Working at Chick-fil-A, nothing against Chick-fil-A. I love Chick-fil-A. But what you can make there, there to Mr. and Mrs. Smith for their nuptials, paying you two grand to MC an event, you'll pretty quickly get up to speed on the skills that you need once you do that math. Yeah. And uh, it can be a pretty good thing for a young person. Yeah, I don't doubt that at all. And it's interesting to me because my, the only two hats I've ever really worn professionally are anesthesiologist and then entrepreneur. And I tell people all the time, like entrepreneurship, like for a variety of reasons, 
is substantially more stressful to me than anesthesiology, which is crazy. If I make a mistake in anesthesia, people die, right? That seems stressful, right? But it turns out that there's like training and like guidelines and like there's like these parameters that you stay within. It's like yeah. this patient, that surgeon getting this procedure mm -hmm. and you like do the Sudoku puzzle and you're like, this is the best anesthetic for this patient based on all of those factors. Like there's ways to guide you, whereas in entrepreneurship, it's just like this open ocean and you can turn the boat in any direction at whatever speed with whatever you want on the boat. And because of that, every decision is big and like that you can forget stuff like the cable at the wedding. And so like it's it, the first thing you mentioned as like the stress there being like people, like I totally relate to that for a completely different reason. But also stressful, Justin, is contracts, Yeah, right? People mm -hmm. talk to me about this all the time. And, and actually, I feel like every time I talk to you about this topic, I learn something. And so I'm super excited to to jump into this on the show because everyone just always considers like, hey, like salary, signing bonus, and then like they kind of just turn their brain off. Justin, I'm going to let you run this thing, man, because you have so much more experience in contracts and negotiations. I love negotiation, by the way, as a coaching topic. I actually have some experience in that, but contracts, very minimal. I'm not a lawyer. Don't look at these things. You look at them quite frequently. So what's the up and up? So I, I was lucky to get into the industry with a boss who made me read like every contract and every estate plan, every will, every trust document that, that my clients had. And as a result, I really got an accelerated education in the school of hard knocks of just very nitty gritty. How do you, and I'm not a lawyer, so this is a good place to make a disclaimer. disclaimer. None of what follows is legal <laughs> advice. But I will say I have been able to bring a comprehension of physician career trajectories to the table that I find a lot of contract, even attorneys well-versed in uh, contract law and employment law, they, they don't necessarily have that perspective. And this was really gelled for me. I had gone to like one of my first, in the beginning, I was going to all the anesthesia and pain conferences because that's kind of my thing. I remember that. And I had a couple conversations and got access to some good benchmarking data to figure out how much should a pain doctor make on a per work RVU basis. And you can normalize any contract based on, if you figure out how much production you're making and figure out what your salary is, you can figure out what is your pay per work RVU, and then you can figure out the region and figure out, am I over or underpaid based on national averages? And I had a client who was like, hey, my contract's up for renewal. Can you look at it? And I was able to determine that if they were flat production year over year, that they should get about a $100,000 raise mm -hmm. in order to make the median income. And by the way, this physician was well, in my, and I'm not their patient, but I can tell with the way that they speak about the conscientiousness that they have for how they serve patients. I was like, I would want this guy as my doctor. And I was able to use this data, structure the conversation with their employer in a way that if he did nothing different, we were able to have their employer say, yes, we see what's going on here. We're looking at the benchmarking data and we think it's reasonable for you to get a $100,000 raise. Hmm. For me, that was a big light. So this was probably five years ago now, but that was a light bulb moment where I was like, holy smokes. Yeah. It's one thing to say, yeah, let's do that back to Roth IRA where we can quantify the value at $62 or something, or we can take a portfolio return from six to 6.4 through asset location, which is great. And we should do those things. But if you can get somebody a $100,000 raise that is then going to stick around for a few years, there's very little financial planning jujitsu that you can do that is going to have that kind of impact. Once you compound sure. an extra 400 grand over 30 years, that's just an yeah. immense amount of value. Yeah, so absolutely. it was that experience that made me passionate about how do we, in terms of examining the terms of employment, how do we get physicians every advantage and every opportunity to succeed, to build wealth, to move towards autonomy that they possibly can have? Yeah, that's actually really interesting because when you pitched this show idea at me, I was expecting this to kind of, and I, I imagine we will talk about other things. 
outside of, of salary, but really to some extent, like what you just said, like it does have to do with salary. It just has to do with a different perspective, a deeper look, understanding where those numbers come from, mm-hmm. right? In order to determine is what I'm being paid reasonable. And and I, I this is actually a really interesting thing because you talk about benchmark data, right? So the institution where I'm at, we use two different benchmarks because we're an academic hospital. So we use private practice benchmark, which accounts for X percentage of the number. And then we use an academic benchmark, which counts for Y percentage of the numbers. Obviously, those two percentages add up to 100%. But, and I want to say, I can't remember off the top of my head which one the academic one is. Sullivan Cotter, I think, is the, the private practice one that we use. Yeah. MGMA um, maybe, is the other big one or AMGA. Yeah, I think it might be AMGA or AMC or wherever that comes from. But they, they combine these two things. And then you like look at your productivity. You, like you look at where this number places you for that benchmark, knowing that it's completely arbitrary how much of that number comes from private practice, which is naturally higher. In yeah. academics, which is naturally lower, and and so like even just the process of understanding like how that works, I think was is is really helpful for me. Uh, I still have opinions about what I'm paid, and medicine's an interesting place. Actually, I have a question for you, and I, I don't know that I want to answer this live on the show. Actually, let's just do it. So when you see reimbursement rates, right? Which like I, I'll say from the physician community, like what I'm hearing hearsay from living in the space sounds like are declining. Right. Inflation rates have been massive. And so one of the questions I've asked my employer before is, why don't you just keep up with inflation? Right. Like, why doesn't that that what I bought seven years ago when I became a faculty member buy me the same things that I I bought back then with today's dollars? And why can't we keep up with inflation? Right. So is there a macro reason for that that I'm just like missing or like what are your thoughts there? Yeah, there there's a few reasons. There's three components to the equation that determines how much gets paid for a patient encounter. The physician work RVU, the overhead RVU, and the malpractice RVU. So there's a, a three factors. The physician work RVU is the one that's getting cut. Mm-hmm. The other two components, the overhead and the malpractice, is the part of the equation to which reimbursement has been moving over the past years. So you might read the headline, oh, Medicare cut another 3% from reimbursement, which is a classic problem. They're talking about cutting from the work RVU. And often that is being relocated to the what's known as the facility fee. So the right. overhead and the malpractice, that's the going to the part of the equation that is designed to cover the operations of the place where the clinical encounter happens. So this is either a surgery center or a hospital. One of the reasons that all this consolidation is happening is that of these three factors, if you just run an office-based practice, the you're not getting access to the facility fee. Right. You're only getting access to a, a global fee that is essentially the physician work RVU. And this is a little bit beyond my expertise, but the point is, they're cutting the legs out from under independent practice owners, especially those who are only in an office-based practice and pushing money to the hospitals and to the surgery centers, which is what, and also there's an asymmetry in terms of the contracts. So if you're independent doc, Smith, they're on Main Street. A lot less leverage. You, way less leverage. You're only getting paid a, a pittance compared to if you're doing the same thing at the hospital down the street, which is why the hospital can afford to pay you a bunch of money. You become an employee of the hospital and now that hospital just, you migrate your patient base with you and you do the same injections, the same patient encounters, the same triaging of medical care. And the hospital makes tons more money, even though you are doing literally the same thing, in part because of the facility fee and also because of the negotiating leverage that that hospital has with payers. So there's like 17 ways. I like to push back. Healthcare isn't broken. It's achieving an end that is perfectly designed by the stakeholders that have the most leverage in this conversation. But if you're a physician trying to make it, Either as an employee or a practice owner, you need to understand these dynamics and you need to work around them and compensate for them if you're going to make any financial progress at all. Yeah, no, that's that's, very 
heated. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I totally get it. And as somebody in the trenches in medicine, these are some of the things that we don't get trained about, right? So we joke about like, these are the personal finance topics you didn't learn in medical school. Well, I mean, yeah. I didn't learn it as a resident or as an attending either. Those hospitals want to buy the independent practices. They don't want you competing with them. So there's a fundamental mal-alignment of interest, it, I would argue. It's like the Wizard of Oz, like, like behind, like just don't look behind mm. the curtain sort of thing. Like yes. you don't know what's back here. You can't fight against it. Yes. Well, so that's salary. And, and so, and, and I know another big thing, right, that people talk about is bonuses and that sort of stuff. And which is really interesting because when I graduated, right? There were like nothing, like you're not getting a signing bonus. You're not getting help for your financial aid in terms of student loans, like nothing. And now I'm getting emails every day for like lots of money in anesthesia because of changes in, in the environment that we're in. But if we're looking outside of salary and bonuses and like just the changes that happen there, right? Like th there are some things that you've taught me about that are you know wildly important in contracts. Some get some airtime, like non-competes, restrictive covenants, that sort of thing. But what are some other high yield stuff that that doctors need to be aware of when they're looking at these things? There is so much in an employment agreement that's going to dictate how your life is going to look beyond your salary and beyond your signing bonus. Another quick anecdote, and then I'll dive into what some of those are, is another experience that shaped this sort of on the other end, instead of a big win, it was a big, it wasn't a loss per se, but it was a financial reality of a not explicitly financial line item. Specifically, mm -hmm. it was had to do with the tail premium for one of one of my physicians on a contract that they had signed before we even worked so together. Med malpractice tail. Yes, med mal tail. They essentially got an invoice in the mail one day. They opened it up and said, you owe 50 grand <laughs> oh, to, wow. to uh, cover the tail of your clinical services for the last few years. Now, the tail is if once you sever, if any of your patients later on sue you for a, a thing that you did that approaches uh, medical malpractice, then this would provide protection. So it's important to maintain that. This was a surprise to my client that they were going to have to pay a $50,000 premium all at once sure. in order to square that up. So one of the things that you want to consider is whenever you're getting into any employment agreement, what happens when I get out of this agreement? Mm -hmm. Because you're not going to work there until you die, most likely. And so you need to understand the terms of severing. One big, I'll call it not explicitly financial term, but that has meaningful financial consequences is understanding how your medical malpractice works, the different types of med mal policies, and then who is on the hook under what circumstances for, for paying that premium. So there's two types of med mal policies, occurrence and claims made. Occurrence has the, and by the way, I'm not uh, an insurance broker either, so take all this with a grain of salt. Occurrence has tail built in. So essentially what that means is you have an, an occurrence policy and there's no tail required. And so once you sever, it's all self-contained and there's no second premium payment that needs to be made. It's a claims made policy that's going to have a second premium payment needed. So if you have a claims made policy, then you want to understand who's going to pay for this and how does it vary based on different circumstances. Employment agreements will sometimes give a number of different ways that you can sever. You die, you get disabled, you quit with sufficient notice, you quit without sufficient notice, you're terminated without cause, you're terminated for cause, gross negligence, malpractice, you forgot to update your DEA. Any of those are different ways that you can terminate employment. Sometimes it will depend on the circumstances. Like, well, if you were negligent and knowingly harmed a bunch of patients, you're probably going to be on the hook for your med mal or right. for your, for your the, the premiums upon severing. But there are some circumstances in which if you agree to give 180 day notice and you do give 180 day notice when you want to quit, that is an instance in which the institution as an act of good faith may say, if you're willing to do this when you quit, then we will cover the tail. Sure. So understanding the different ways that you can quit and the financial implications of each of those. Another one 
that is sort of similar in these severing dynamics relates to if you're on a variable compensation structure attached to either collections or RVUs. Mm-hmm. You, anybody who understands a little bit about revenue cycle, meaning how you get paid for the work that you, you don't just help a patient and then they hand you cash right there. Right. Takes time. You help a patient, you submit a claim, that claim gets rejected. There's prior OS that may or may not have been done. And then it takes 60 days, perhaps somewhere between 30 and 90 to get paid for that clinical encounter. So if you quit, especially if you quit on short notice, the institution for which you work is going to continue to get paid for the clinical work that you have done. So understanding if you're getting paid based on collections, like there's still a bunch of collections coming in after you're gone. What happens to those collections? If you're making, we'll just use round numbers, half a million dollars a year, we'll actually use more round numbers, 480 grand a year. So that'll be $40,000 per month of collections. If there's a 60-day average collection cycle, you're leaving $80,000 on the table once you leave, even if you give notice for clinical work that you're doing and never going to get paid on. So understanding if you're on a variable pay structure, really digging into like, what happens when I get paid? Who, what happens with these collections? That's, it's not like, it's not the salary and it's not the bonus, but it has material financial impact and it needs to be negotiated up front. Yeah. So I I think I've shared this story before on the show, but I actually know where like this accounts receivable delay has an impact at the beginning too. So one of my residents, he told this hilarious story. He's actually the person that came up with the name of the show. So great guy. And he, when he took his job, he there's like this funny story lives in folklore where he works and they basically give you an upfront bonus that you quote unquote owe back over time. And so Jake was like, hey, why? Like, why does this exist? And like, well, let me tell you a story. So there's this partner that joined. They previously brought in people from predominantly from the military who had some money coming in. That's kind of the, the funnel that they had previously. Well, they decided to get this uh, cardiac anesthesiologist from uh, Duke and uh, came in. And uh, a couple months into his job, like the surgeons came up to one of the partners and like, hey, what's up with this new guy? Like, he's like taking like sandwiches and like snacks from the physician's lounge. And they're like, like, what do you mean? And they're like, I mean, like, watch him. Like, he's going to go over there and like take a bunch of bananas and like peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. And and so the partner approached the guy and he's like, hey, like, is everything all right? Like some of the surgeons pointed out that you're taking stuff from the lounge and maybe bring it home like groceries. And, and the guy's like, well, I mean, like I left fellowship and like, it's been two months and I haven't been paid. And, and like, that was the first like red flag that apparently the partner's like, oh gosh, I hadn't really thought about someone who didn't have financial means coming into a job and wasn't going to get paid for two months and not knowing how to cover that gap. They didn't have the money because they came from training. And so what happened was they provided work and had this variable pay. And there was this 60 or 90 day delay between the work that was done and the money being received. So he didn't make any money. And so now when new partners come in, they they front them the money so they can cover those living expenses for the first couple of months. But how they found out about the way that the contract was structured was obviously less than ideal. Yeah, it is less than ideal. And there's a lot, if you're on production or if you're dependent on the revenue cycle, it's always important to understand on the front end, especially if you're starting in a place where you're not going to have a lot of volume. Pain management, for example, like it takes a while to build up your patient base uh, or any other proceduralist where you're going to be doing a lot of networking on the front end to try to get doctors to send patients to you. Yep. You want to make sure that there's a stipend or some sort of floor. Like I'm never going to make less than 30 grand a month or whatever the number is so that I can pay my bills, pay my student loans, cover my mortgage and car payments, et cetera. Sure. Yeah. And I did want to mention, I didn't want to gloss over, like you mentioned the malpractice thing. I actually gave a talk to my fourth year med students last night. Obviously this is recorded in advance, but when I gave that talk, one of the things I talked to them about is an emergency fund. 
And naturally, they're not going to need this necessarily as a fourth year med student, but I may not have any interaction with them in the future. So this may be the only financial series of talks that they get in their life. And so as an attending, I kind of warned them like, hey, like, why do you think you need an emergency fund? What needs or things could come up? Like, what about a job loss or a job transition or whatever? And I was like, okay, let's say that you lose your job or you transition jobs. What financial costs would you have to consider? And they, need, they normally come up with the obvious things. Well, I need to sell my house and that's 8% of whatever the house costs. And I'd, I'd probably need to have some living expenses to have the gap, that sort of thing. But the one thing they always forget is malpractice tail. And then I show them the numbers. I'm actually going to be showing the numbers in the next lecture, the asset protection lecture. Mm-hmm. And depending on what your specialty is and where you work, man, like those numbers are mind blowing. Like if you're an obstetrician in Florida, I'm sorry. You, yeah, like, you, be, you better Forget make sure your tail is covered. It's, it is a very large number, but I, I completely agree. I've seen doctors get trapped in jobs because they couldn't afford to A, sell their house and B, so they had to stay in a job that they didn't like for even longer until they had that money. I'm always asking these questions and looking at these circumstances with an eye towards autonomy, flexibility, freedom, like doctors should be able to do what they want. And any decision that you're making that's going to have meaningful, it's going to meaningfully impinge that. Sure. Better have a darn good reason for that. And related, I think because you went through med school, you went through training, you were board certified, your brain belongs to you. Right. And so I'm also not a fan of these, anything that you do for as long as you work for us is work product, capital W, capital P owned by the institution. So any intellectual property, even any it's sometimes it's defined so broadly, like any outside business, like you're literally not allowed to do anything. And if you're doing anything, then you either owe us a percentage of it or we're going to categorically exclude or forbid you from doing anything, not even clinically necessarily, but certainly that's part of it. But also like I've seen things defined so broadly as like if you were to open a popsicle stand down the corner or do real estate or something else like that, that there's going to be a problem from your primary employer which I think is just so ridiculous. Especially, I think this is a, yeah, go ahead. So this is a hard one for people to understand though, because you, for a lot of us that went straight through everything, like they were always an employee. They don't have a lot of business background. Yeah. And so it, it doesn't really cross your mind, but, and honestly, it didn't even until entrepreneurship. And I, I paid a, let's just say a large six figure sum of money to learn this lesson. But when somebody is partnering with you, right? Let's say your hospital is employing you, or let's say that you own a business and you have partners within it. They own that business idea. They do not own you. Right. And so like if you create even an idea in the same space, then there's like this, well, is it a competition? Like, is there a restrictive covenant or competition clause in there? Like, how is that defined? Like, I, I know docs that are in private practice and like the job that they signed up for isn't exactly what they're experiencing. They and they have some pain experience and they open up a ketamine infusion clinic. Right. And so like, is that clinic in competition with the job that they'd been doing? And how do you determine that? Right. Because they own your employment at that hospital, but they shouldn't own you, right? Your intellectual property, your ideas, anything that's outside of that hospital. Yeah. And so if you're going to maintain this flexibility, it needs to be negotiated up front. Now, these bigger institutions are places where they're going to have contracts, employment agreements structured in this kind of way where they've got a whole legal department and it's very like locked up. But there are, I would encourage any listeners, the market right now for physicians of just about any specialty. This is particularly true in anesthesia, which I see most closely, but I'm sure this is true for others. I mean, I I see surgeons out here. I see even family, like across the spectrum, physicians are in the power seat in terms of negotiating. So don't let people tell you that nothing is negotiable because if, if they're desperate enough, things are negotiable. And I've seen negotiations happen. I've seen terms that are in stone be changed with the biggest institutions in America. And I really, you shouldn't sign something you don't like. Now you have to be patient. You have to be able to have other alternatives. You have to negotiate appropriately because 
these institutions are used to just squishing docs like a bug when it comes to this. And they just say, oh, we kicked it to legal. And they said, sorry. Well, if you can push back and say, well, then I'm, I'm going to keep my other, keep pursuing other options, then you put the ball back in their court. So you do need to maintain financial foundation that will give you that kind of flexibility. But if you do, these things often can change. Yeah. And, and, and what I don't want to say often can change, but I, but I will can. say I have seen them change. Yeah. And, and, and one thing I'll point out here, just, and this is just a negotiation tactic is that a lot of time people draw lines in the sand pretty quickly, which um, is not a great way to negotiate. And so what I'm hearing you say and what I encourage people to do, like when I coach them on negotiation tactics, is to just point out the problem, right? Like, like you don't need to say no. Like what you need to do is say, hey, I'm looking at these other opportunities. Some of these opportunities don't have these restrictions in their contracts. So it's making it a little challenging to kind of get over the hump to sign this contract with you. These are my concerns. And when you list out the concerns and you just tell them like, this is a problem for me. And all of a sudden that other side turns into not the other side, but a, a team trying to solve a, a, a problem that you both have, right? You're trying to get to a common goal, which is for you to be working with them. And in order to do that, you've now provided a hurdle that you need them to help you overcome, right? As opposed to saying, I'm not going to sign this because this has now, you may at some point get to there, get to brass tacks. But if you can avoid that, it's amazing how often people will turn into team players. And one of the ways that I see this, Justin, I, I see this all the time with my residents, is they will come back, Jimmy, I, I, I found this job and I'm like, oh, tell me about it. And they're like, yeah, it's going to make X number of dollars. But my work expectations are, this is where it is. This is why I like it. And then I'll ask them like, hey, does this have a non-compete in your partnership track? That's about those two different things. And, and I'm like, well, the partnership track, like it's three years. I'm like, well, do you get paid if they get bought out? How does that work? And, and they're like, well, I don't get paid anything as a partner if the practice gets bought out until I'm a partner. And I said, well, why? And, and they'll go all the time. They'll go back and be like, well, they said that there's just no chance that they're going to sell because they're not even considering it right now. And I was telling them like, hey, why don't you just go point out to them like, hey, if there's no chance that this could ever possibly happen, then surely you don't mind putting language in there that says if it's a three-year partnership, I get a third at one year and two-thirds at two years. And then you get the full thing at three years when you become partner. If it's not going to happen, right, then why not? And like, I, I don't know, 90% of the time when they go and ask that question, they come back and I'm like, yeah, how the conversation go? They're like, I'm not allowed to talk about it. They're like, okay, so you got it. They're like, maybe. And so it's, it, you have to ask the question and point out the problem. And people will, a lot of the time, become a team player trying to solve that problem for you. Yes, this is particularly true if you, it depends on who you're negotiating with and how big the institution is. And are you really talking to the decision maker? Are you talking from, to, to Sally from HR who sure. doesn't really know or care or have any vested interest? If you're talking to a department chair who's either going to, be able to give you what you're asking for or talk to the lawyers and say, listen, we need Dr. Turner. So you need to fix this thing so I can give him the contract that he needs. And that type of a reasonable approach consensus building is going to be a lot more effective. And frankly, it reflects a little bit of humility because I do see to take this to an extreme, you see people who come out of training and they're like, pow, like, give me what I want. Take it or leave it. And it's like, all right, I'm glad you read. What's the book? Never split the difference. Never split the difference by Chris Voss. Or Although I love that book, just to be clear. But you got it. And, and he tells you like, being diplomatic with your counterpart is the best way to get what you want. But if you come in and just even in the partnership conversation, like I'm actually more sympathetic to that one than I am to like, we own all your IP forever. Sure. Just because if you're running a business, like we built this business and if you don't like, we want you to be a partner before we're going to pay you. And I think that's a good thing to be aware of and a good thing to negotiate for. But if there's like six docs who mortgaged their house 10 years ago to make this thing happen and now it has grown to whatever it is, like, I don't necessarily, I'm more sympathetic to that owner's proposition that you need to be a partner first than I am to 
Yeah. yeah and, and, think- I, and I guess I'm not ironclad. Like you should never sign a contract if they don't get there with you on that. But you should absolutely ask. For sure. Yeah. And I think if you take nothing else from this talk, like always ask. Right. Uh, because there's you have nothing to lose. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I had another resident recently who was talking to me about a job change. And and basically did just that. Like I said, hey, like I, I'm I'm changing jobs. I was gonna sign with this one job, but family stuff happened, and so I'm transitioning and and basically said, Hey, like these are the issues that I have with this contract that that you put in front of me, and like didn't tell them what he wanted. Cause what he wanted was substantially less than what they offered the second time. Hmm. And so he just said, Hey, these are the issues. Is there any way we can kind of work to compromise on some of this or moving move the needle up a little bit? And they came back with numbers that he thought like would never be offered to him. So it was, it was interesting hearing that story. Yes. One final thing I'll mention is has financial impact, but is not explicitly financial, is the ability to either taper your FTE mm. or to work outside of your employer clinically in a way that doesn't directly compete in the same market. I think, again, in the anesthesia world, it's like, I think competition is a, a total farce. Like you're yeah. There, there's, if you go to the hospital across the street, I refuse to believe that you're going to, there's going to be a problem there. Um, I'm so amazing, Justin, that all of my patients would actually follow me as an No, like they're the surgeon's patient, right? <laughs> so like, right. they're not following me. They're like, oh, you happen to be the anesthesiologist that's working with the surgeon today. Like, when am I going to talk to the doctor? I'm like, I am a doctor. Well, whatever. You can't have a big ego and be an anesthesiologist. Not a that's, good one. Yes. For procedural specialties, you could make more of an argument. But the point is, if you want to work locums, which I recommend everyone like, if, if possible, keep a contractual door open to doing that, which is going to require you to taper your FTE. So if you tell your employer, hey, after six months, I want to go down to 0.5 and work two on, two off so that I can do, take one week totally off every month, and then I can do another week and do locums somewhere. If you want to do that, you're going to need to get it in writing in advance in many cases. Mm-hmm. Now, this is going to have significant financial impact if locums rates are way higher and your W-2 is way lower and you get certain benefits from your W-2, but locums offers a better remuneration per hour. So if you want that kind of flexibility and if you like the upside of having some 1099 income, which I totally recommend that everyone keep those doors open, because when you have self-employment income, then you can expense stuff, then you can make self-employment retirement plan contributions. There's a lot of other avenues for wealth building that I really like, but it is going to require that your employment agreement on the front end permits you to do those kinds of things. Sure. No, that, that makes total sense. And for me at Wake, it's a little interesting. I actually haven't I'll have to look at my contract because you know how it gets renegotiated and we've been acquired so many times at this point. Like, I don't even know what my hospital is called anymore because like, it was like, I think originally Atrium came in and then like now there's like Advocate and Aurora that are all associated. We're like the fifth largest hospital system in the country at this yeah. point, which brings in obviously probably new policies and contracts and stuff like that. But previously, it's always been kind of a conflict of commitment, a conflict of interest question. Like, what it, it, does this take you away from work in terms of your commitment? Or is this a conflict of interest in terms of competition? And as of right now, at least the way this historically been, I just have to get permission from my chair. And so as long as I've always been able to have that conversation with them, it's been okay. There are some things that are ironclad in a contract. And there are other things that are kind of left up to, let's say, institutional policies, which to me, I'm not a lawyer, so I don't know what that means other than to say, I know I signed a contract that says I'm going to abide by said policies. And so I don't know if that extends all of my legal requirements over to those documents. But, but yeah, I think having the option to do things outside, obviously I do, has been really important to, to my journey. Yeah. And another helpful method in terms of negotiating and understanding what you're getting into is if you're interested in going 0.75 after two years, so you can do a little locums or do something else, ask like how many people, even if they say it's allowed or it's allowed at the discretion of the chair, say how many people are doing this right now? 
If it's zero, that says something culturally. If it's like, well, 80% of our docs go to 0.75 after two years, that also says something culturally. Yeah. So understanding how the policies are actually implemented gives you a nice window into what your future is going to look like. Yeah, absolutely. Well, on the show, hopefully, everybody, these are some concepts that that maybe are fresh and new to you. I know some of these things that Justin, you and I just discussed were educational for me. And I feel like every time that we talk about this topic, it's something else that I'm going to learn, just kind of going through the experiences you had. And I really appreciate the stories that that you shared. But for those that are looking for foundational principles, don't forget to subscribe to the YouTube channel. You can pick up a free copy of my book at moneymeetsmedicine.com, or you can actually snag an own occupation disability insurance quote from moneymeetsmedicine.com slash disability as well. And we will see you next week. Thanks for listening and being part of the community. Cheers. Justin Harvey is a certified financial planner at APM Wealth, where he helps anesthesiologists and pain medicine physicians. Dr. Jimmy Turner is a practicing academic anesthesiologist at Wake Forest in North Carolina. He's also a licensed insurance agent. However, either Justin or Jimmy are your financial planner, investment advisor, or insurance agent. This show is expressly for general education and entertainment purposes only. Nothing should be considered financial advice. All views expressed are solely the views of the guests on the show and do not represent the views or opinions of their employer. Thank you.